13. And for this morning, we will be in verses 1 through 10. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. This also is God's holy word. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of this holy word. Our Lord God, we come before you and we ask for the power of your spirit that you would grant us godly conviction. Father, we acknowledge that your word sends, uh, your word says that in the end, you will send a powerful delusion, a strong influence to deceive those uh, who know not the truth, who are not your elect. Father, we pray that you would guard us from the ways of this world. Help us not to be tempted by its allure. Father, we pray that your word and spirit would refine us, that we would live by faith, that we would desire to cast off the things of this world and the loyalties to it. Father, we pray that you and you alone will receive our worship, that in worship that we would serve, that we would fear, that we would honor, that we would obey, that we would adore you and not the things of this world and not the worldly powers. Father, we acknowledge how easy and how readily uh, we follow the things of this world. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that we would seek you, that you would refine us in our loyalties and our affections. We pray, Father, for the good news of the go forward, to go forward with power even this day, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up, that sinners would be brought to faith and repentance. We pray, Father, that your son would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. It is uh, mid-February, and it is about now, as I look in my garage, and I sniff, and I smell, uh, and I I see things that uh, start to accumulate. So uh, granted, we've had an unusual winter where it wasn't 
a typical winter, but the bottom line is there's salt on the road, there's dirt on the bottom of your car, you have these things that are snow boogers, and then they drop and accumulate all this junk in the garage. And it leads, you know, you think about it, each time you drive in, each time you walk out, your, your feet leave things in the garage and your, your car drops things in the garage. So all that accumulation over time leads to something that we call spring cleaning. And it's needed, and we see the need for it about now. And you realize that if this is true physically, how much, true, how much also is this true spiritually? That we go about this world, we function in this world, and, and, and you think about how much time you spend doing the things in the world, submitting to its rules and its patterns. And you think about how, how long we spend in church and how long you spend in the word of God, and you realize, wow, there is a major competition and it's imbalanced. How quickly we start to come at the word and say, hey, there's something wrong with what God has given us because it doesn't, it doesn't, confi- it doesn't, uh, it doesn't conform to the pattern of this world. And, and then there we, we catch ourselves and we have to say, no, wait a minute. I'm the one in the wrong. I'm the one in the wrong because God's word is never wrong. It is always truth. It is never falsehood. It is we who need the refining. We who can continually hear the things and the, the standards, the values of the world, and we attempt to bring it into the church. We attempted to bring it into our lives. We attempt to bring it into our families. We attempt to teach it to our children. And here we think about there's only two types of people, the elect and the non-elect, those who are in Christ and those who are outside of him. And how much it is that we need this spiritual cleaning that we first need this humility we think about how this pattern of the arrogant or the haughty words spoken and the blasphemies they go together pride blasphemy and how that first step of pride is towards this blasphemy where no sooner do we start to think that we have wings we can flap and that we can get a little elevation and then we think that we can exalt ourselves over god and we speak ill of him All that's lost there is the humility that says, God, you are truth, and every man is a liar. And that's how quickly we start to question the things that God has given us, and you realize the word comes to us, and it questions us, and we must welcome that. We need to hear that. You need to hear it. I need to hear it. So we see in this today's passage, Satan authorizes the sea beast who is worshipped by all, but God commands you to persevere and worship him alone. Satan authorizes the sea beast who is worshipped by all, but God commands you to persevere and worship him alone. We think about how this book of Revelation was written during a time, a young church, a church going through all kinds of turmoil. Their leader was just executed in a horrific way, a shameful way, being crucified on the cross. And you wonder, is this religion going to survive? Well, don't worry, he who is at the helm, controlling all of history, from beginning to end, he sees fit in his wisdom that the church went through difficult times. Uh, Before the coming of Christ, after the, the, the resurrection of Christ, and until Christ returns. You think about how we wish, oh, the church should be that much more powerful, that much more numerous, that much more influential. But God doesn't have it so. And it's in his wisdom 
that he has this. We think about how this book of Revelation, it comes with such great promises that those who read, those who hear, those who keep this word, that there is great blessing involved with that. May this word be an encouragement to you. May it be a correction to you and to me, even as we open our ears to the things that God has given us. So we see this comes in four points. The first is the appearance and approval of the beast from the sea, verses 1 through 3. Second, the arrogance of an adoration for the beast from the sea. Third, the advantage and authority of the beast from the sea. And fourth, the alarm and admonition to the saints. So the first point, the appearance and approval of the beast from the sea in verses 1 through 3. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. <clears throat> Here, we think about how Revelation 13, <clears throat> it uh, functions as a continuation and expansion of what, what the previous chapters have been saying. <clears throat> Revelation 11:7 speaks about how uh, the one there, the, the beast that makes war, overcomes, and will kill the saints. And that uh, the, the saints, God's people, uh, their bodies will be in the streets. And they'll be left out there. They, they won't be buried. They won't be given proper burial. And it speaks about how there will be people, uh, those, the dwellers of the earth, which is not a good term. It's, it's a negative term describing those who are the unsaved. That they will give gifts to one another, celebrating what has happened. Oh, we, we've killed those who have spoken of the judgment to come. We think about how in Revelation 12, we have the description about how Satan was and his, and his demons were cast out of heaven. And they've been cast to the earth. And they make trouble. And in this chapter, we have descriptions of some of the trouble that he brings. <clears throat> in these first few verses of chapter 13, we have a description of the satanic parody. So, we were talking last night about parody. So, uh, you think about the various parodies, right? So, uh, it's a parody is a caricature, it's a mockery. So, someone writes a work and then someone makes a parody of it. Uh, or you think of some guy like, uh, I, perhaps he's too old to be remembered, but Weird Al Yankovic, that he is the one who wrote all kinds of parody songs of popular ones. Well, Satan has a parody of, of the things of Christ. <clears throat> we see uh, a number of these things. In Revelation 10, uh, the description about the scroll, how the scroll set foot on the land and on the sea. And here you have the beast, or you have the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, and that Satan uh, has dominion over both of them. He has authority over both of them. The appearance of the beast uh, with ten diadems. That the description about Jesus in Revelation 19. 
He's the rider on the white horse called Faithful and True, and that on his head are many diadems. The very description about the mortal wound there in verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. What does that sound like? It talks about Jesus who died on the cross but was raised again. There is a parody there. Then, then we have the bride of Christ who is the church. And later in the chapters of Revelation, uh, you have the description <coughs> excuse me, of Babylon, the whore of Babylon. What is that other than a mockery of the bride of Christ, who is the church. The dragon, Satan, gave the beast of the sea its power and his throne and also great authority there in verse 2. This very description sounds as if uh, the father is the one who has given all authority in heaven on earth to the son and that everyone, everything in heaven and earth will bow at his feet. <clears throat> the whole earth marveled and followed the beast of the sea there in the latter half of verse 3. Yet we also see that during <clears throat> the time of Jesus that many were astonished at his teaching and they desired to hear him. Perhaps you can see the connection there that Satan is one who makes mockery. We're told that Satan appears as an angel of light. In other words, when Satan comes deceiving, he doesn't come with, you know, these, these horns. He doesn't come with the pitchfork, you know, in his hand and, and this, this uh, forked tail. He doesn't come that way. You know, typically you see these college football games. Was it, they have the Red Devils. They have the Blue Devils. I don't remember which teams they are. But they have a mascot, and he runs around, and people all, people all laugh, and they think it's quite funny. And, and Satan loves it in that situation because we make a caricature of him. We underestimate him. And, and then we don't realize the, the methods that he uses. We think also about how, on one hand, it's true that God is in control of all authority. Romans 13, that if there's any authority that exists, it exists because God has put that person in authority. But we also see that part of the chain of command that God has delegated many of those things to Satan, that Satan is the one who puts people in, its, in their place. When Satan took Jesus to the very high mountain in Matthew 4 and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, was Satan merely bluffing or was he lying? On one hand, it's, he's a usurper. It's not his to give. But there is a sense in which the kingdoms of the world, the rulers, those who are in power, why is it that it seems like they're always making laws and punishing Christians? You know, oddly, the Christians are going to be the most faithful and loyal subjects. But I think you and I can see that as people get greater and greater power, they expect greater and greater loyalty. And they see that Christianity is a threat to their kingdom because they say, hey, I can't have my subjects being loyal to anyone other than me. Is this what happens? Whether it's a single ruler or a group of people or a few people or many people, whatever's the case. That here we see the satanic parody. That there is the, uh, the appearance of strength and power. That the, the ten horns, the seven heads. That se uh, six is the number of man, yet seven is the description of completion. So is ten. 
So we think about this ten horns. A horn is a symbol of power. The head is that which rules. So when Satan, with his beast of the sea, comes, it rules with complete power and authority over the realm of men. So that's the first point, the appearance and approval of the beast from the sea. We have the second point, the arrogance of an adoration for the beast from the sea, in verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. In verse 4, it says, And they worshipped the dragon, and they had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. So this concept of worship, what does it mean to worship God? When we worship God, we try to describe what is worship. It's a concept of giving fear, of serving, of loving, of obeying. That these things describe what is at the very heart of worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? You see, the very description of God describing his people and how they would love him, how they would fear him, they would walk according to his ways, that they would serve him, and that they would do so from the heart, not merely without what actions, that they would keep his commandments. Think also about the reasoning. So the people were worshiping the beast. But think about their reasoning. They were saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So they make two questions, which are actually two arguments. Who is like the beast? <clears throat> this question sounds very similar to the question that is appropriately asked about our God. You see that often in the scriptures. Psalm 113, 4-6. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The question is, who is like the beast, is attributing an otherness to the beast. There's no one like the beast, is what they're saying. We've never seen anything like it. It sounds very much like God's essential characteristic of his holiness, his otherness. He is the creator, and there's creation. He is the one who is worshipped, and nothing else should be. This describes God's otherness. We see that also, Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? There's no, there's no marvel among the masses about spiritual things because their eyes have not seen, their ears have not heard the Almighty God. That's, that's what's missing. That's what they're not seeing. You contrast that too. That's seen in, in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah, Isaiah, he comes to realize who he is because he has seen the Almighty God. And he says, woe is me for I am lost or I am undone 
for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah is not saying, who is like the beast? He is saying, who is like God? I've seen him. The immediate response, the evidence that he's seen and come to know God is that he says, I'm a sinful person. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm among a people of unclean lips. That is exactly what Peter said when he came to know who Jesus, who knows how, how long he had been with Jesus. But he says, get away from me. I am an unclean man. Being able to see God for who he is and his holiness, you and I can come to terms with who we are and how small we are in relationship to him. The second question the masses are asking and who can fight against it? Who can fight against it? The rhetorical question, who can fight against it? Their answer is nobody. The carnal, unregenerate man sees no competitors, no challengers, no threats, no battle to the kingdom of the world, which is ruled by Satan. Romans 7 speaks about battle. The battle that is in Paul's heart, the battle that should be in your heart all the time, the battle that should be in my heart, that there is a war going on, a spiritual battle, a competition. And, and when, you look, when you look out at the world, the masses, you look, you say, there's no battle here. No, nothing, nothing at all. It's completely one-sided. But the battle is in your heart and mine. Here, I, I think about one of, one of uh, a friend of a friend. Right? She... She saw her neighbor going to this place of worship of a sizable world religion. This blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman going to this place of worship. And this Christian woman asked her neighbor, hey, so why, why, why did you choose to go there? And what she said was, well, they are the most powerful and they are going to win. That's what she said. And, and then you think about, okay, it doesn't matter. You look at the, all the world religions. Number one, you ask the question, why is a woman going to one of these world religions? It's like, did you not know that uh, if you want to just compare the status of women between Christianity and all the other world religions, Satan says, hey, the last you should choose is Christianity because Christianity has women in the rock bottom place. That's entirely false. You come to know these religions, you realize Christianity has the highest place for women. This is part of the lie. You see, the, the, the world says, hey, uh, you, you're not going to let your daughter do this or that, or you don't let your wife do this. We don't think about those things. We think about, hey, what place do women have? You think about some of these other world religions. Does a woman even have the right as a witness in court? Do they even have a right to divorce? Where do we have that but in the Christian church? That no, no one, no one, no place in scripture do we ever say that women are created inferior to men. The man is created in the image of God. The woman is created in the image of God. Man and woman, he created them. Nothing about inferiority. Nothing about being on the bottom. What other religion has that? But this is part of the lie that people believe. So people will go to the world religions and say, they're the most powerful. They're the ones who are going to win. You think about some of these great world governments. 
in the Eastern Bloc countries, how they actually seemed to be invincible, the most powerful. And it was during those times that they imploded and died. There's the appearance of strength, but there was weakness. Yet oftentimes, we see in the Christian life, there's actually the appearance of weakness when there's actually great strength. It takes the eye of faith to be able to see that and to acknowledge it. Here, we think about this lack of battle, this lack of competitors, this lack of challengers to the world powers. And in contrast to that, you have those who have seen the power of God. They've seen the power of God manifested in sinners. Perhaps you've seen people in your own life and you've said, I've known that person, I've known that person well. This person was a good for nothing person, whatever, whatever's the case. Nothing good was gonna come from this person's life and suddenly the person changed. And I asked him, what changed? And they said, Jesus Christ came into my life. Perhaps that person is you. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You want to talk about battle? You want to talk about change? You want to talk about power? The people, the carnal people of this world, only see civil and physical power, and, and they bow the knee to that and say, that is the greatest power we've ever seen. For all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you realize the power to set a sinner free from the bondage to sin and death, that is the greatest power we've witnessed. And then we look at that and compare it to the civil power, and we, we conclude the, exactly what Jesus uh, tells us. Hey, listen, don't fear him who can take your life, spill your blood, right? Last time I checked, these, these blood vessels in this neck, right, if they get cut and blood spills out, no blood goes to your head and you're going to die. Simple put, I, I'm sorry if I'm sounding gruesome, but hey, this is, this is God's word. That, that those uh, who can have the power of the sword and can take life, he says, don't fear them. Fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. There is a greater power than the power of the sword. And as the power of God. Perhaps you've witnessed that in your own life and how God has changed your life. He's changed the way you think. He's changed your loves. He's changed your loyalties. And that you would say, you know what? I'm not bowing the knee to the world anymore. I'm not lusting for that power because I trust the power at work in your life and mine. That's trusting in Jesus Christ. The things that I once hated about God, I now love. And the things I once loved, I now hate. A complete transformation of your life. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it speaks about this power. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That power is at work in Christ's church. That power is at work in your life. Have your eyes been opened? Is your life transformed, in fact, saved from death? Then worship 
the Lord Jesus. Stop worshiping Satan and walking according to the ways of this world. Here we see in verses 5 and 6, we have the coupling of arrogance or haughtiness and blasphemy from the beast of the sea. <clears throat> the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. <clears throat> Here we see the exact same thing in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, that the ruler who comes exalts himself, magnifying himself above every god. I want you to see the link, the close link between pride and blasphemy. You think about the garden, Satan telling Eve, hey, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So she's saying, he, he's, saying, he's saying to Eve, hey, you can have equality with God. What he's really saying is, he's saying blasphemous things. Hey, it's not you have equality with God, you will usurp him, just like I did, is what he's saying. Pride, as we exalt ourselves, invariably, no sooner do we do that, that it leads to blasphemy. That there's going to be an exalting of oneself over God. What is, what is secular humanism? What is atheism? Are those all not man exalting themselves over God? How soon does a person begin to think highly of himself, that he despises God, and speaks harshly of his creator. You think about the, the seeds of this pride. Do you despise the warnings that come to you in God's word? When someone is warning you, saying, hey, listen, you need to listen up, that there is warning in the scriptures about a need to examine your own life, your own values, your own beliefs, your actions, if there's a sloughing off, who, who, who are you to challenge me? Who is, who is God that I should hear his word? And this is exactly the words of, of Pharaoh. And look what happened to him. That there ought to be a humility. Search me and know me. That our lives would be examined by God. That he has bought us by his blood. That our life belongs to him. And that instead of, uh, instead of questioning the word, we should be willing to be examined and questioned ourselves. By our God, who is our master and Lord. So this is the second point, the arrogance and adoration for the beast from the sea. We have the third point, the advantage and authority of the beast from the sea. Verses 7 and 8. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. <clears throat> Here you have the Apostle John. In a rather nonchalant, matter-of-fact way. He just kind of says that uh, this beast will be allowed to make war and on the saints and conquer them. And you think, well, does he not care? 
No, it's not that he doesn't care. No, nonchalant, you know, is, you know, on one hand, it's, is it not caring? But there, there's two ways, but the other is not worried. Because this is exactly what the Lord has told us in his word elsewhere. <clears throat> are you ready? And are you easily going to accept your defeat in this world? Meaning, are you able to say that the world will oppose you and you're okay with that? Jesus had warned that the world had hated him and the world will hate you also. If, the, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But Jesus says, I have chosen you out of the world. So he says, hey, that means you're not of the world anymore. And the world will put a target on you. Perhaps he asked the question. Look at this verse 7. And also is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Hey, I just want some peace in my life, right? I worship Jesus and he makes things easy. I have peace. I can have a retirement. I can have a good job. And, you know, I could... You know, send my kids to school and they can grow up and I get to see my second and third and fourth generation. What's so bad about that? I just want to have peace. I, I don't want the world against me. Why would you accept the opposition of this world? Why would someone in the right mind accept this type of treatment and defeat? Perhaps you've asked that question. This is my answer. This is God's answer. This is the Lord's answer. He who has known the worst bondage. There's no greater bondage than the bondage to your own sin. Those who have any form of external bondage and are Christians will tell you that they've experienced both types and the worst is bondage to their own sins. It's only those who have experienced such bondage and have been set free by Jesus Christ and him alone. It is those who will say, there's no, no cost too great. There's no shame too bad, too low. John 8, 34, 36, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This is bondage. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You ask, why would someone submit to this kind of treatment from the world, the rejection, the reviling, the despising of the world? It's because you've known a greater love in Jesus Christ who set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And that you would say, there's no greater joy than to live for, to follow, to trust in Jesus Christ my Lord even if that means the rejection, the despising of this world. You see also in verse 8, that all who dwell on earth will worship this beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. <clears throat> Here, we ask, well, what's the big problem with that? What's wrong, what's wrong with the world worshiping a beast? Well, we see that in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is that this worship is not due to the beast, it's due to God and him alone. 
the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not saying, hey, God's happy so long as he's number one. So it's not saying that you have to have God as number one, but you can have number two, three, four, and five. You married man, you just need to go, go home and ask, ask this to your wife. Hey, hey is it okay if, if I have other wives so long as you're number one? I can have two, three, four, and five? I, I think they're going to say, no way. No, that's not going to work. And, and vice versa, if you, your wives go home and ask, no, no, you can't have any others. So also God refuses to have any lesser God. There, there can be no one, no one else. Here we have the challenge, though. So God, God claims exclusive right to worship. And, and the challenge, so you have the Satan is, is above the beast, who's above these world, world governments. They're always telling their subjects right and wrong. They're telling them good and bad. You realize that you look back in history, you don't have to look very far. You, you look back, you know, a few decades. People were being thrown into prison and being executed because there was a disagreement regarding a political philosophy. Meaning, you disagree with us, we will take your life. There's, there's no answer. Hey, we don't answer anyone. You disagree. The guy in power, you're on this side, he's on that side. You're dead. Simply put. I, I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't know. So then here we, we go back to the human rulers or governments or wh whoever's in charge. And uh, they, as, they, as they get further up there, as they, you know, they're, they're grasping for power, yeah, you think about the typical person, right? Hey, we, we, we kind of want to be left alone, right? We, in general, hey, listen, I, I don't want to govern your life. I, I, I'm trying to govern my own, right? But you have the people who seize power. They're, they're constantly trying to grab more power, more authority. They make laws. You, you think about how has Christianity ever been in, in the, the, the group on top in power? Rarely. And whenever there was, it was only a hiatus that God had given uh, before they're, they're right back on, on, on the persona, persona non grata status. So, so we think about, again, this worship, the, the fearing, the serving, the loving, the obeying, the adoring. It's, it's easy for us, you think about that spring cleaning concept, it's easy for us too lightly to start to correlate too quickly uh, this fealty to see that hey wait a minute who provides us with our wages and our food remember the scene in uh, when when Joseph came to power right he, he interpreted the dream and suddenly uh, this this person in the lowest prison becomes prime minister of Egypt <clears throat> and as the famine continues for uh, not one year but seven years that the people who owned the cattle and the land, that they were coming back to Pharaoh saying, hey, now we have no more food, so we'll sell you our cattle. So you own our cattle. And then, then they have nothing left to say, hey, listen, we'll, we'll sell, we're selling ourselves to you for food. You remember the scene? And, and, and here you can understand that uh, oh, government, yeah, we'll own you. We're, we're very happy to do that. So who provides you with your wages and your food? Is it God or is it the government? that we're under? Is it your employer? And then, then you start to cover, cover this, this matter of, well, the employer says that, okay, we will reward this and we will punish that. And the government says we esteem this 
and we oppose this. Yes, you're right. That Romans 13 says that we exist within a society that we're supposed to submit to our government. But you ask yourself the question, who is Lord over your conscience? Do they, does the government ever have a right to be Lord over your conscience? The Lord Jesus and him alone is Lord over your conscience. When we start to discern good and bad or, or right and wrong because of someone who's over us, when we start to forget, you think about the simple prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It's a reminder us that it's not the credits, it's not the kickbacks that we get when we do our taxes. Uh, it's not the employer that pays our wages, that gives us our food. It is God who provides it. God can use any hand he wants to provide you with what he wants you to have. So you've heard that statement, don't buy the hand that feeds you. Don't worship the hand that feeds you. You understand that God is the one who provides. He uses different hands to do it. Here we have the only exception to the rule. All who dwell on earth will worship it, will worship the beast. The only exception, it's by implication, that those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, that they are the ones who worship the beast. It's only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life that we will be the ones who don't worship that beast. Have you ever sat in church, sat next to someone who's singing off-key? I hope that's not me, by the way. Uh, but if everyone's singing on key, and you have one person who's singing off key, it's, it's kind of hard to stay on key, correct? And you think about Christianity. The whole world is worshiping the beast. It's as if they're all singing a sharp or a flat note. And God is saying, hey, listen, in this world, you're not of the world, but you're in the world. They're all singing off. And you are commanded to sing correctly, the right tone, the right, the right note. It's very difficult to do. But you realize you have the power of God, the Holy Spirit, at work in your life. This is what gives you hope. This is what gives me hope. Perhaps you've wondered, where am I going with this? <clears throat> the good news of the gospel is not... It's great for those who have never worshipped the beast and bowed the knee to a false god. The answer is there was no such person. The good news of the gospel is for those who have bowed the knee to the false god. Whose eyes are opened. That you and I would be those who say, you know what? The Lord has given me eyes to see. I once loved the beast. I once... Love, I lusted after that power. I, I, I love it when these powers come in, and how, but how quickly they turn against the people. The good news of the gospel is that those who have worship, idolaters, can be forgiven of sin. That we're commanded to repent. The love, the serving, the fear, the loyalty that is given to the Lord Jesus to the God who sent his son to save sinners. The good news of the gospel is those who have failed 
can be made new, can be forgiven of sin, can be washed clean. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not too bad if you ever did, and that only those who never did are doing well. No, the good news of the gospel of those who have failed miserably and find true hope in Jesus Christ who washes us clean of our sin. He is the one who sanctifies us by his spirit and saves us by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the third point. The fourth point, the alarm and admonition to the saints in verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is a repeated warning in the verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We, we heard this earlier several times in, in the letters to the churches in Asia in chapters, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. If anyone has an ear, as an ear, let him hear. Meaning, who is it that you hear in this word? We, you think about how, well, what is evangelism other than telling people what Jesus has said and then people hearing that and saying, hey, I recognize the voice of my master. What, what is that other than evangelism where, where someone is just, hey, I hear all these finding, looking for messiahs in all the wrong places and then suddenly, hey, wait, wait a minute. That voice sounds different. I recognize that voice. That voice is the voice of my master speaking. So also, you're being called. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus who is speaking to you. He is Lord of your conscience. Not man. Not any man. You think about Wayne and I, the leaders, the rulers of the church. We don't have any, we don't have any authority to bind your conscience to anything other than God's word. We, the only thing we can tell you is you need to believe and obey the word of God. We can't tell you you have to listen to us and the things we want. We, we don't have any such authority. Any, anyone who claims that is, is a fool, is, is, a, is a false shepherd. We're telling you obey the voice of the Lord Jesus. There's also a threat. I think the, is it the King James has it best? Eh? Sometimes I do agree with the King James. Where uh, verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. I, I think a, a better statement there is uh, uh, something like he who leads others into captivity, to captivity he goes. He who kills with the sword will die by it. So, so you see, there's, there's a symmetry to it. If, if there are people who are leading those into captivity because of the faith, then we're told, to captivity he goes. If anyone uh, slays with the sword, they also will be slain by the sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. You think about what happened with the Apostle Paul throwing people into prison. Well, this is eternal captivity for those who do not repent. There's also here a call to spiritual battle. <clears throat> Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It's a call to faith. Keep God's promises or trust God's promises. You must do a regular spiritual inventory regarding the clearing out of these false ideas, these false loyalties. It's a call to endurance. Keep fighting the good fight. 
Believe not the deceptions of this world and follow not the temptations that come with it. Here we think about the various ways that this passage can be of good use to us. It's a reminder about the attraction of power and authority of mere men. To carnal men who know not God, they have not believed upon Jesus, the power of life and death is the greatest power they witness. The power to tax, the power to confiscate property, the power to imprison, the power to take life. That is the greatest power that they see. And carnal men will lust after this earthly power. They'll be impressed by it. They'll bow the knee to it. They'll desire it. Yet to spiritual men, those who worship and serve Jesus Christ, your eyes have been opened, your ears have been opened, your heart has been transformed. Your life has been changed. It's also a warning about the close link between pride and arrogance and blasphemy. No sooner do we think highly of ourselves that we will begin to despise God. How important it is, how essential it is for the life of the Christian that we be people of humility. And we thank the Lord that he sends affliction your way and mine so that we might be more humble, that we might trust ourselves less, and that we might trust him more. May you acknowledge that in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because Jesus, our Lord, says he has overcome the world. May we go to our God together in prayer.